Um, Father, I thank you for uh, your son. I thank you for what he has done for us. I thank you that he has um, brought us out of darkness and into the light. And I ask that as I open the scriptures, um, you would illuminate them, uh, that you would speak to us, to me, and through me, and to each person here, and through each person here as we, as we hear and as we listen to you. Amen. So, um, it's a like show of hands thing here. Uh, who who spent a bit of time in a church? Maybe you grew up there, or maybe just even as an adult, been in a church where you where the church recited the creeds or the creed pretty much every week or very regularly. You go one, two, three, handful. I don't know, maybe between a dozen and half a dozen people. Um, for most of the church, for most of church history, uh, that would have been the norm. In the worship service, uh, you would recite the creed. I believe in one God, one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, etc. Uh, and sometimes here we sing the sort of the Hillsong version of it, don't we? Yeah, I believe in God, our Father. Christ the Son, believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three and one. Now, um, important part of worship for most of the church, for most of church history, um, to establish these things of the faith in the hearts and minds of believers. Now, some uh, Protestant Christians in particular have mixed feelings about the use of the creeds. They don't necessarily deny what's in them, but they, you know, some more kind of fundamentalist Christians would say, we've got no creed but the Bible. That's something that gets said. Now, personally, I think there's a little bit of a logical trick being played there because no creed but the Bible sounds a bit like a creed to me. So you're still sort of making a creedal affirmation. Um, and look, although we don't recite the creeds here on, uh, on the regular, um, I do think they're very important. Because the creeds, and if you're not sure what the creeds are, there's basically like an, a statement of faith, a, a, an affirmation of the, the dogma, the essentials of the Christian faith that it's essential to believe. Um, and I'm not an expert in the history, but... Um, they are in some ways a record of, in particular, what the early church sort of landed on as being essential. They usually um, were sort of occasioned, you know, the reason for formulating the creed was usually in response to someone kind of going off the rails a bit, for instance, um, someone saying, you know, this Jesus guy, he, he was inspired by God, he was empowered by God, but Jesus wasn't really God, he was just a man, a very special man, but just a man. 
And so the church got together and said, no, 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 no. It's very important that we establish Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was fully and is fully human and fully divine. And there's a mystery there. But we can't push too far one way or the other to the detriment of the other. Um, And so too, the creeds helped to establish the doctrine of the Trinity. I believe in God, our Father. I believe in Christ, the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. One God, three persons, eternally um, in love with one another, eternally three persons. No one person is any less than the others. Again, this is a mystery, but very important to have right. And without going into it, I think we can see when we get one of those things wrong, actually there's implications down the line. Anyway, that's all preamble, sorry. But uh, it's in my mind to focus today and to set as our theme for the next several weeks one of the lines of the creed or one statement that we find in the creed. And we do sing it in that Hillsong rendition as well. This is something that's been on my heart for a while and over the last couple of years as I've thought about our preaching and what are we looking at, what themes are we drawing out, which scriptures, this was one, I guess, overarching theme that I wanted to look at in some depth. And the line is, I believe in the church. That's an interesting thing to say that you believe in, isn't it? As a sort of a statement of faith, an article of faith. I believe in the church. I believe in God. Well, I can't see God right now, so it makes sense in some ways for me to have an affirmation of faith. I believe in God. Um, I believe... In the church, perhaps seems like it goes without saying, or maybe seems like it doesn't need to be said. Well, why do I focus there? A lot of people are angry at the church, um, and In a lot of cases, there's good reasons for that. In 2002, for instance, you may know this story better than I do, the Boston Globe, a newspaper in the United States, exposed an incredible scandal within the Catholic Church of abuse, sexual abuse from clergy to parishioners. And this uncovered and um, made public something that had been secret and hidden. And and that event alone has shaken a lot of people's confidence in the church. And the extent of that is still being exposed. Closer to home, last year, um, near the beginning of the year, a story began to unfold about... Um, I guess a major church in New Zealand um, 
popular, multiple locations around the place, um, and a sort of a trail of devastation of, of interns and, and people who had been mistreated within the church. It was in the news, there were legal proceedings and reports and all that stuff. And even at just the most basic personal kind of level, it's easy to have a bad experience with people in the church because people in the church are people. And so a lot of people end up feeling kind of frustrated with the church. They feel uh, that there's something wrong going on and there may or may not be. Moreover, I think that what we're going through culturally as a church, as a people, is uh, an ongoing shift in, in terms of our place or the place of the church within the culture at large in the Western world. And Kim put on the screen and talked to us about um, open doors who work with Christians and churches around the world who are under intense persecution. We don't suffer and experience anything like that in New Zealand, uh, at least not that I'm aware of. And yet we are going through a time where perhaps a hundred years ago, the church would have been seen and kind of held up as one of the pillars of society and an institution that was part of what made New Zealand society New Zealand society. And that's shifted. And I'm not making a kind of a value judgment here or there on that. Um, and I'm not going to go into all of the reasons for it. I just want to sort of name it as a reality and name it as part of our context that we're in a time and place where the church is treated with less respect and more suspicion. So why start with that line? I believe in the church. Well, I start because, and why I want to focus on it, is because I do believe that the church is not just something that we go to. Uh, it's not just an activity that we um, can sort of give or take or treat lightly. I believe that if we look in Scripture, we find that the church is very important to God. It's God's idea. It's God's creation. It's something that, yes, despite some of the evidence we have to believe in, but it also has, despite all of that, an incredible identity and purpose and mission. So, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking 
at some of the scriptural language, some of the passages of scripture, and in particular metaphors for the church that are found in scripture. Um, Let's do a quick little chat around your tables. And it's okay if you don't know the answer to this question. Um, Maybe go and join a table where it looks like people have some ideas. But around your table, have a quick little chat about one or two of the metaphors in Scripture. I'll give you one for an example. The church is described as the body of Christ. Right? And there are others that you might be able to think of. Language in Scripture for what the church is. So around your table, have a little chat, five minutes or so, about one or two of those images. What is it? um, And what are the sort of implications of that image? Go. Some of you might want more time. Some of you probably chatting about what you got up to on the... On the weekend, um, does anyone want to share something, uh, a favourite maybe image and maybe an implication of it? Who wants to share with us? Joel, thank you. Praise the Lord. Um, um, on our table, we discussed um, also the image that the church is the bride, and um, you know that there was, yeah. Um, there was discussion around, you know, what does that mean to each of us? Because, um, you know, especially me being a male, it's, you know, a bit more odd to think of myself as the bride of Christ. But, you know, I just think, you know, the, the purity and stuff that he has done for me and through him. So, yeah. Mm. Awesome. Any other images that came up? Any other interesting comments? Yeah, right. Um, just going forward from that, I think I also see an image of like, if we're the bride, we're like married to Jesus, and it means like being with him always. So when we come to church, we're with him, and that's the importance of it in my mind. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That'll be a big theme through a lot of the images and. Um, we might also think of the temple of the Holy Spirit as one of the images that's used, the body of Christ, obviously. Um, a lot of them carry this important notion of presence that actually you we're with to be to be the church, not just to be in the building. To be the church means to be with God, to be with Christ. Any others? Jono. It wasn't my idea, but um, one of our people um, talked about, uh, especially as Gentile church, we're the branch that is grafted into the vine. Um, one of the implications is, you know, a lot of our faith is built on what God did for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's not irrelevant. It's very much our foundation. Awesome. Very, very good. Yeah. So there's a lot. And, you know, one of the, I guess, recurring themes. No, any final takers, by the way, before I put this down? No. Um, uh, I guess another recurring thing that's probably going to come up is that, and I'm going to say again soon, is that um, 
the New Testament, when it's written to people, it's written primarily to churches. There's a couple of letters, like to Timothy, that are addressed to a person, but by and large, these, these letters are written to churches, to, to groups, gathered groups of people. Um, so, we had bride, very good, body, temple of the Holy Spirit, um, the people of God, doesn't kind of sound like an image or a metaphor itself, but it kind of is. There's a sense, if we get a bit creative, of, uh, in which the, the church is described being like an army, being like the army of God. And this is one that um, there's no sort of scripture that says, you, the church, are this. But this is almost read all the way through the New Testament in particular, is that the church is the family of God. I remember we did this as, as a young adults group um, this, uh, a couple of years ago, and um, someone said, but where does, it, you know, where does it actually say that in the Bible? And someone else chirped in and answered for me, which was very good. And they said, it's just kind of everywhere. Like we're taught to call God Father, and we're called brothers and sisters, and we're kind of grafted in. It's, it doesn't have to be a, a sort of... Um, a quote verse saying you are the family of God, that reality is throughout. So we're going to look at that. And all these um, metaphors we're going to look at over the next several weeks. But this week, uh, we're going to take a, a short look at the passage that was read by Janine. It's not going to be a deep dive, uh, but let's have a look. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It starts out with a sort of um, instruction. It says, rid yourselves therefore, therefore being from the previous passage, because um, we've, we've just had the description of what's happened for us through Christ, and therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, as I said before, we can receive this individually, can't we? I can sort of do a little stock take and I can think to myself, uh, have I got much malice going on? Am I being guiling? I don't know what the verb is there. Uh, am I being insincere? Do I have envy? Am I slandering people? And yep, we need to think about that for our own selves. But we can also receive this corporately. We can think and hear this uh, as an address to not just individual persons and people, but to a people, to our church, to the church universal, to the church in New Zealand, or to the church that gathers in Hillcrest here in this place. Verse 4, come to him. That's an important instruction, isn't it? 
continually. It's this kind of a sense of Christ has come to us, but we continually, we come to him. A living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built up into a spiritual house. Here's another image. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What we have here is a a lot of language and imagery drawn from the Old Testament and from the, um, the temple system. Which in the Old Covenant was the way of approaching being in the presence of God, being reconciled to God, now that is finding its fulfillment here. Verse 6, he goes on. For it stands in Scripture. See, I am laying in Zion uh, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There's two things I want to note here without unpacking everything that we could unpack. The first is, relates to what Jono said, that this, um, this people, this body, this temple, this spiritual building is built upon something that has come before. This language and um, even quoting of the scriptures here is telling us that God's creation of the church, God's establishing of the church, is what was long promised. The other thing is, we can see, and many of the the metaphors in Scripture about the church... um, we can see a very close identification of Jesus and his people. What I mean by that is it could be that the metaphor says, well, God and and Jesus, they're like the architect, and you guys are a a temple, and I'm going to build a building, and there you go, that's great. And there's obviously a sense in which we can call God the architect and the builder, right? But here, the church, the the people of the church are described as um, living stones, just as Jesus is described as a living stone. Jesus, of course, is the cornerstone, and there's a little bit of I guess, debate about exactly what the cornerstone meant. Was it the foundation? Was it sort of like an important piece in a stone structure that tied everything together? 
um, in some ways, I think we just get intuitively the cornerstone is the most important one, right? It's the, it's the one that the whole thing is based on or based around. And yet we also are living stones. So Christ has not created a building over there that he looks at and he likes to see. He's created a building upon himself. He's established the church upon himself. And we can go even more um, intense with that identification if we think about the church as the body of Christ. We are all, Paul says elsewhere, sort of a body of many members, and Christ is the head. The church, the people of God, Christ is the boss, but he is also one of us. He is the king, that's right. And we could think of the, the image that we're sort of standing before the king in the throne room. But in some of these metaphors, we get such a close identification that we're not just in, on his team. We're part of his body. We are part of who he is. He's made us, the church, to be part of himself. The next verses, verse 9 and 10, I think, um, drive that home a little bit. He's just said that they stumble because they disobey the word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Again, that draws from the lineage of Scripture from the promises that were given to Israel and Abraham and to Adam and Eve. So the church has a very uh, special God-given identity. He says, You are these things in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, you were not a people. I guess what that means is when I sort of look around the room, there's a sense in which before Christ, we would not be one people. We happen to live in the same area, but we come from different backgrounds and families and nations and languages. We were not a people. But in Christ we have been made God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think it's very important in that sentence to notice this little phrase, in order that. So you, Hillcrest Baptist, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that. So, for the purpose of, or so that you can, what? So that you may proclaim the mighty acts 
of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One reason that I continue to believe in the church is that I believe that God has given it, has established it and created it, and here I think we read that God has done that for a purpose. God has given the church to the world for a purpose. And this was meant from the beginning. Adam and Eve, created in the image and likeness of God, um, put into that garden to steward it and tend it and care for it, and to bear God's image, to look like God to the world and to one another. We know the story that that broke and it didn't go so well. Abraham was called out of sort of nothingness in order that he, he would be blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Israel, God's people, was called and in Isaiah is described as a light unto the nations. And of course, Jesus picks up that language and and says it of both of himself, that he is the light of the world, but he also says it to his followers, to his people, to the church. You are the light of the world. And so the purpose of God creating a family, a temple, a body, a bride, is that we might Proclaim the mighty acts of God, that we might demonstrate to the world who God is. I didn't really plan it that way, but this tied in beautifully with some of the videos Kim put there. The, the understanding that some, some of these Christians have is that their job is to be the hands and feet of Jesus in, in war-torn and, and earthquake-ridden places. They're there both in their physical acts of service and in the way they, they, they preach the gospel, they're there to proclaim the mighty acts of God. They're there to say, this is who God is, and we're going we're gonna to love you because that's what God compels us to do. And so, yes, there's a lot in the church and about the church and uh, related to churches and that, that we can feel a bit disheartened by or we can find ourselves frustrated or hurt. And we need God's grace continually. And at the start of this service, I read from Psalm 30, 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And we don't always experience or feel that unity. But we do have unity from the Lord. Whether we receive it or not. And what I mean by that is we can disagree about a whole lot of stuff. Like we can disagree about how often we should do communion or about whether we sit in rows or have tables like this. 
We could disagree about the color of the carpet or the, the way the walls you know, are painted. You know, there's a ton that we could disagree about. But if we are established as God's people, if we are created as the people of God and the holy uh, royal priesthood and holy nation, we have a purpose. And we can be united if we make that our purpose. What did Peter say? To proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of that, that we have been pulled out of darkness. We've been pulled out of our blindness and being dead in our sins and in and God, you have given us new light and life. You've brought us into new, into your light, into eternal life. And God, you have placed us in a people. You have made us to be a people. And God, um, I ask that you would continue to pour out your spirit upon us that we might understand who we are, that we might understand the incredible uh, privilege and joy and honor it is to be named in these ways, to be named a holy nation and a royal priesthood. God, give us a, an understanding and a revelation of just how amazing it is to consider we would be the bride of Jesus. And God, grow in us and stir us up to realize that we're not given this honor and this privilege and this, um, this incredible identity just for ourselves. Yes, you gave it to us because you love us, but God, through us, you want us to proclaim your mighty acts. Through us, you long for us to be a light among the nations. Through us, you long for us to be a people so on fire and so empowered by your spirit that when people see us and they see the love we have for one another and the love we have for the world, that they would see you through us. God, that is who you've made the church to be. And we fall short, God. And I say for myself, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For where I've not reflected that image, but God, make me, start with me and, and make us together a people who reflect your image and glory into the world. Whatever happens in the world, whatever changes, God, make us to be your people. I thank you, God, and praise you that that is your plan and that we can pray for it and you will answer us. I praise you, God, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.